Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephen Sadman, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. Our episodes drop every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Each week, I will be talking to one of our four co-hosts, Aaron Gibbs von Braunschot, Vanessa Kimball, Lena Tamsetto, and Arthur Wilczynski. Thanks for listening. Today on Battle Rhythm, Aaron Gibbs von Braunschott, professor at University of Calgary and co-director of CANIS, the Canadian Information... What does CANIS stand for, Aaron? Let you describe it, not me. I know, it's a kind of an awkward acronym. Canadian Network on Information and Security. Well, and it's good timing to have you on because there's all kinds of information security things out there in the world to talk about. So let's get into it. Right now is what one more days of hearings in Ottawa about the convoy that mm -hmm. we had a bunch of folks dominate downtown for a while. And now we're trying to figure out uh, who was responsible and all the rest of it. And I guess from an, you know, since you're co-director of a network that's on information, there's been a whole lot of misinformation, disinformation. And I'm curious as to have a perspective from sort of the Canis angle of things. When you look at this, the convoy event and how it's been weaponized by various actors, what are your impressions? And can we Canadians develop a single understanding or at least a, a widely shared understanding of the events? Uh, is the, are these hearings helping to clarify things? I guess is the way to, the question I'm asking. Yeah, those are really good questions. I think one of the, the things that's striking to me in this particular example is the number of stakeholders that we are going to be listening to or hearing from with regard to these hearings. There's multiple police agencies that were involved, multiple levels of government and the public, including those who were residents and the protesters themselves and uh, the rest of, uh, of Canada who were watching this situation. So if you imagine that every one of those groups has their own spin on how things unfolded and, and what the truth of the matter was, I think we're going to come up with kind of a, a number of stories and a number of narratives about this situation. But I think what I would be recommending is that we we talk about something maybe more simple and, and look at the jurisdiction of, of the event and how, how that was managed or mismanaged. I know in the, the um, some of the material that we've been looking at, it's we really are supposed to be focusing on the legal requirements that the government was using to make the decisions that they made. And I think if we try to just focus on the, that piece of the puzzle, it might be a little bit easier. But all those stakeholders are going to have their different ideas about the truth of this situation. Yes. So there's going to be different truths with each jurisdiction trying to avoid blame and direct the blame onto others. Now, in a lot of your work, you care about jurisdictions, and that's been one of the key focal points of your research. So when you look at this, this the events of, of last winter, and one of the common narratives in town, in Ottawa anyway, was that this was really a provincial matter and a pro province let us down. 
do you think there's a, a fair way to describe it? Uh, that you know, the real emergency was the refusal of the provinces, the provincial leadership here, and also in, in your province, Alberta, to do anything about this. Would you was it that fair to say that's the emergency? You know, it's complicated, as many of these things are. And you're right. And I'm highlighting jurisdiction, as I seem to always in every discussion that we have. This is a bit of a tricky one. And you know, when we're trying to sort out jurisdiction, obviously, we're looking at who has responsibility for what the governance structures that are involved and the resources that that agencies have to deal with certain situations. And I think the resources one is kind of a, a critical one in this particular matter, because at least from a Western Canadian Calgarian perspective, are lots of the narrative at, at the point that this was going or taking place was that the municipal police did not have the resources to deal with the emergency that was going on or with the situation that was going on. And then we also were hearing that the province of Ontario didn't have the resources. It, you know, if it's a resource issue and certain levels of government are unable to use resources or deploy resources in a certain way, it sort of gets amped up to the next level. Again, you know, municipal to provincial to federal. But the question in my mind is the reality, I, I should stop using the word truth, but the reality of the situation in terms of whether Ottawa police did have resources and failed to use them in the appropriate manner, which required access to provincial resources and sort of up the chains, who had access to what resources at what time is going to kind of draw our attention to certain decision-making principles that happened at the federal level. I guess for me, the question is, is not less about resources at first, but more about authorities, which is who has the authority to respond to this event? Mm -hmm. um, at least my understanding of it is the feds only can get involved once the emergency act is invoked. That gave them the ability to, to act. And then before that, it was really up to the city and the province to act. Is that a fair description? And, and the, the question then is also, when does a province have authority to act and who can direct these, these actors? Because uh, the other question about this is, who's running the police and who's running the OPP and who's running the RCMP? Is, are these decisions entirely left to the heads of the various police entities or there's a room for politicians, policy you know, office holders to be able to tell the police to act when the police are reluctant to act? That's a good question. I, I'm focusing on resources because I think it's sort of authority is based on resources to be able to deal with a certain situation. So I would think that, as people might expect, that in the situation in Ottawa, that the, the municipal police should have been the first responders to this situation. But if they claim that they don't have the resources, even if they have the authority, then it doesn't matter if you have the authority without the resources to kind of back up your, your claims. But I think there is room for policy. It's just sort of sorting out in this particular instance. For me, the, uh, my question is about who had the authority to act, because the conflict, at least that seems to be at least in the, in the public eye, is whether the feds could have acted without the emergency act. Whereas it seems like, to me anyway, that the province has always had the opportunity and authority to act but chose not to, that once it became clear the city was overwhelmed, the province of Ontario should have been acting without having the need to consult with anybody that they had the authority to take to, to, to respond, and they chose not to. I think that that actually is a good assessment of it, that, and I think that's the way it's been described, is that there was a lack of willingness, which may be related to resources, on the part of the municipal police which then in, invoked or caused the, the police or the provincial police to act in a certain way that failed. And then there was this imposition of the federal emergencies act or the federal legislation. 
So it's, I think this will be what has to be sorted out, obviously, in these hearings that are upcoming is who, who failed to do what at what time and did they have the authority to act in the ways that they claim they did not. And I'm saying that because the Ottawa Police Service kept referring to this as an unprecedented situation whereby they they were unclear, it seems to me, that they had the authority to deal with the situation in a specific way. So whatever they meant by unprecedented, I think has to be unpacked, as they say, as well in this situation. I guess we'll learn more as these hearings go onwards, as we're talking on Tuesday, October 18th, outgoing mayor of Ottawa, Watson, is is testifying. And mm-hmm. that's one of the challenges here is that he gets to skate after this without, you know, really being held responsible for, for his mistakes. I don't know if he was going to run for re-election if this thing hadn't happened. So maybe that is the accountability that we want out of this, is that we found that the Ottawa City people failed, and at least they're the, the top of the chain is in office. I guess I guess that's a, a win for accountability, but it's so very frustrating whether anybody's going to learn any lessons from this. Because mm-hmm. guess what? I, I can't imagine that these convoy folks, these extremists aren't going to try to do this thing again. It worked the first time. They got a lot of money and they got a lot of attention out of it. They um, did. So why not do it again? Well, it, do, it does seem as though it was fairly effective from their perspective. I know that residents in Ottawa must have been furious and infuriated at the uh, whole situation. That definitely came out in the first couple of days of the hearings where they had the, the, the hearings allowed the local community associations to speak up and, and they, they remain outraged mm-hmm. uh, you know, eight months later or so. Speaking of outrages, why don't we talk about Ukraine-Russia, that Russia has been hitting uh, civilian targets the past several days with missiles and with kamikaze drones, as they're called. And I guess the strategy of of trying to create pain for the Ukrainian people is a bargaining strategy, try to make the Ukrainians more willing to bargain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems, and, and, and they're explicitly targeting energy and water infrastructure, but it's not going to change the battlefield. These are weapons that are, that could be used on the battlefield, but they're not. Mm-hmm. So is this, is this part of an information campaign, do you think, of trying to persuade the Ukrainians to give in for the Russians to be able to to show to the world that they can still be effective fighters even as their newly uh, conscripted mobilized soldiers look you know mm-hmm. look all, all that soldierly. Yeah, I think it, when you read all of the articles that, about this situation from both the Russian press as well as from the Western press, it does appear that there are, are uh, the, the situation is that they're not even talking about the same thing. So when you look at what the Russians are saying, they, uh, of course, are blaming the Ukrainians for every move that they make, whereas, of course, the Ukrainians are suggesting that they're responding to the aggression of Russia. But it's like they're, they are completely, um, the Russians have this, uh, I think, feedback loop that they respond to, which is the information that Putin basically puts out there, and they uh, they don't seem to see that there's a, a reality other than the one that they are maintaining in this situation. So I, it's going to be difficult, I think, to bring these groups together when they're not even able to agree on the most basic of premises, like what this is called, an invasion or a war or a strategic maneuver, whatever they had called that. Special it, military operation. That's right. Special military operation versus war. You know, these, in some ways, they're just words, but they are words that create a whole different understanding, obviously, of what's going on. So I I think there is clearly a disinformation campaign that the Russians are expressing and and broadcasting. 
And it's going to, I think, you know, create a long and drawn out process. Just this morning, I was I was reading about they're not able to broadcast their their Russian parliamentary decisions because they're considering a, a draft law that will actually mobilize people who have committed crimes to be participants in their armed forces. But they're suggesting that they could not dis- or could not broadcast that because they didn't want to provide that information to the enemy. But they're broadcasting that they're not broadcasting it. So it's, it's kind of like a mind game. I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to tell you kind of thing. So it's it's very strange and very difficult to sort out what the mess, what to make of some of these messages. And since you are the co-director of a network on information security, uh, how well is the Russian inf- disinformation campaign playing in Canada? Has there been as much pickup in Canada of Russian talking points as there has been in the United States? I don't believe there has been, actually, although we are certainly... Um, participants in retweeting some disinformation as as our colleague JC Boucher could attest to. However, I, I think that they're, you know, in some of the stuff that I was reading, there is they look at people like Tucker Carlson as sort of a member of the the Russian media these days. And obviously with the number of followers that he has and Fox News have, and they're directly propagating this Russian propaganda in a in a major news network. I don't think we have that same kind of issue in Canada, but there are people sort of less prominent that are retweeting and propagandizing some of that in Russian information as well. Yeah, this this war. I mean, I, I think part of this this the thing I keep going back to is that the Russians have a lousy story to tell, and the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians have a good story to tell of the underdog uh, fighting off invaders and and winning to a large degree. But mm-hmm. I just don't know if the Ukrainian skill at controlling the narrative in the West is working elsewhere. I mean, their their meme game, their video game, it, it's been terrific. But I just don't know how well it plays in other parts of the world. I do know it seems to play really well in North America. You know, this wide dissemination of their videos uh, showing them, you know, shooting down Russian planes or, mm-hmm. or whatever, and they always are good at selecting the best 1980s rock music to go yeah. along with it. Don't see and I, the Russian stuff is not being disseminated in that and through those channels. So it is obviously being disseminated through. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, really uh, also such a matter of proximity. The likelihood of being influenced by propaganda may be somehow related to the proximity of your place, geographic place to to the, the war. So for example, when I was in Europe, of course I couldn't understand due to language barriers, some of what's going on, but their, their concern is probably from, at least from the, um, the people that I was speaking to, you know, the, the concerns are sort of more immediate, not necessarily the talking points of either side, but the immediate concerns of energy and what they're gonna do this winter. So I think that they might be somewhat less interested in some of those than the narratives that either mm-hmm. Russia or Ukraine are putting out that, but the more basic need of energy is kind of what they're focused on. So I think proximity might have some uh, impact in, on our resistance to or, or acceptance of, of some of the, the messaging. Well, speaking of messaging, we've been getting interesting signals from the chief of defense staff, uh, General Wayne Eyre about the personnel problem that they're facing, that they don't have enough recruits joining the military. They've lost too much of the middle folks who do a lot of the training, a lot of the management of the military. And, you know, speaking of of messaging, it's been very striking to have uh, the Chief Defense Staff, Wayne Eyre, out talking about how Canada's capacity to help support the rules-based international order is 
is under strain, that the military is under stress from all the emergencies that's been responding to, and it has 10,000 fewer troops or so than it should. And mm -hmm. so that makes it much harder to be ready to deal with all these domestic emergencies, as well as supporting the deployments in Latvia and the, sh the ships going to the Baltics and also the ships going off of Taiwan. And so this is due to the appearance he had before the National Security Committee about our posture. And I, I'm curious from your perspective is, is, is how do you see these kinds of messages going forward? Is this is that is there a need for the for the chief defense staff to be putting these things in such stark terms? Is, is this going to help recruitment? <laughs> is is recruitment a, a messaging problem or is it something else? Well, yeah, it's a very interesting strategy. I think it probably does make sense for the chief of defense staff to be talking like this, but I think it should be pointed out that the unprecedented personnel crisis is not just specific to the military. There's a, a huge recruitment issue in policing as well. So any kind of social control agency other than sort of security type security guards, that seems to be a, a booming kind of industry. But when it comes to government related policing agencies, such uh, including the military, I guess, it's it's a, a problem everywhere. I think one of the things that that they're going to have to consider in CAF is exactly what they're proposing are the attractions to life in the military. You know, we see the most of the the news, unfortunately, I think, or a lot of the news that we get about the military is that it's plagued by significant problems internally and really is maybe for many not looking like a fun job to do yeah. in terms of the actual work. So I think they might have to consider how they're pitching the attraction to life in the military. The other thing that I think uh, comes up, it, certainly with regard to recruitment and policing, is who they're trying to attract. And that has to do with age and diversity. But just in terms of generational differences, young people today are going to face a, or face a, a lifetime of multiple careers. And so I think maybe there might be ways in which they, they might sort of re reconfigure what life in the military looks like and maybe not calling it life, you know, choose different words such as short-term career or something like that that might incentivize people to, to come into the military. But with regard to the diversity issue as well, I think that there's a lot of work to be done about showing how the, the military is accepting of all kinds of people and all elements of society rather than just looking in some of their previous campaigns looking like a fairly monotone agency as well. So there, I think that there are ways in which they might definitely look at what might attract people to life in the military. That to me is sort of like the basic messaging, but I think the urgency of their message by suggesting that, that we're going to face a global crisis is kind of a, a, a different tack to take, but I, I think that they might have more success about the global kind of component of this by looking at the more local level and why would somebody go into the military instead of maybe the global kinds of forces at play? Yeah, I, I, I do think that it's a combination of policy and reality that yeah. they can they can try to spin a better message. But if the culture doesn't change, if they don't exactly. build the barracks, if they don't provide a better lifestyle mm -hmm. for the people in, then no matter how much lipstick you put on a pig, it's still going to look like a pig. So I, I think it's a combination of things. But uh, they mm -hmm. got, I, I do think that the transparency there is had about this. I think that buys him some, some credit for the rest of the messaging that that might mm -hmm. be fairly clear about what the crisis is and where the crisis belongs, what they're trying to do about it. 
that the rest of the stuff he has to say has weighs more heavily than if it was just you know smooth talk and everything mm -hmm. yeah i mean the interesting thing is that your colleague jc and i have a survey out in the field right now trying to ask questions about what shapes attitudes towards recruitment about whether you would recommend someone join the, the military at this moment in time and we use uh, survey experiments to to test whether stories about certain groups being discriminated against affect your your willingness to recommend someone join the military so mm -hmm. it, it's in the field now, so we don't have any results yet, but yeah. I'm very much looking forward to finding out what we, what what the reality is. It will be interesting. I did actually go to the, the um, Canadian Armed Forces website and looked at the recruitment parameters, and I wound up taking the practice Canadian Forces aptitude test. And I have been advised that my performance might qualify me for some Canadian Armed Forces occupations, and I should talk to a recruiter. But it's, it was an interesting test, and it focused on verbal skills, um, spatial skills, and mathematical or problem-solving abilities. Honestly, when I was taking this, I, I guess it's been a long time since I've been in high school math, but some of these questions were quite hard. So <laughs> they're not like um, denying people access to a career by by maybe having limitations on some or limitations in terms of test scores on some of these items i don't know i i didn't i i don't know what you are required to get for a score to be qualified to to speak with a recruiter but it's it kind of made me interested in exploring this a little bit more to see what exactly they're looking for and what minimum score you could get away with that's really interesting i think my guess is that it's more about trying to place people into a potential potential specialty than than an yeah. entrance requirement because I I think at this point in time they're probably not gonna keep people out of the military if they can't do their algebra right right but I, I could be wrong about that uh, <laughs> that, that, that that is definitely something that we that that we should look into is to see you know what is the next step what happens to these things mm -hmm. I do know that one of our PhD students here at Carleton was trying to get into the military and it was and the challenge was not the test. He did find the test. The challenge mm -hmm. was just the processing takes forever. And I think, you know, uh, the, the other big news out of this past week was that AIR had announced a, a new effort for personnel recruitment and that they were going to take a close look at all the different processes and try to, they were going to freeze all unnecessary activities and focus more on what does it take to get people into the cap and then through this system and all the rest. And all I know is I think that the recruiting system right now is kind of broken just in terms of just processing the paperwork and mm -hmm. people, you know, through all the initial hoops that way they can they can actually start to serve. And that can be tricky. You don't want to just let people in the military without vetting them all the rest. On the other hand, if you create huge barriers at the outset, then people are just going to disappear. Yeah, for sure. It, it, you guys aren't asking any question, are you on your survey about whether people have applied? That's mm -hmm. a good question. Uh, you have to ask JC. He's more familiar with the the whole battery of questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's there's something in there that's related to that, but I, I can't mm -hmm. I can't speak specifically to it. Those will be really interesting results, and maybe you can actually inform the chief of defense staff <laughs> and, and give them some advice. Well, this research is funded by DND. Uh, we got a target engagement grant to do some of this work. So we are obligated by that grant and also just by you know general social science to share our results with whoever will listen to us. If we do get the results, well, well when we get the results, we will uh, definitely not only try to publish them, but we'll use our various networks to try to inform folks. And, and maybe we'll have JC on the podcast to, to talk about what, what we found in that survey. That would be great. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you as always, Aaron. 
before I go, I should note that we have an interview that one of our other co-hosts, Anessa Kimball, is interviewing about his research, and that'll come up uh, right now. I'm sorry you're not going to be joining us at the CDSN midterm colloquium we're having at the end of the week. We're halfway through the grant, the, the SHRC grant that has started our uh, the CDSN. I'm very, very grateful to, to your efforts, to JC's efforts, to all of the co-directors for making this thing happen. I just try to take credit for all the great things that you guys do, and I really appreciate all the hard work you've done. I know you're going to go off and do some vice deaning, but we hope to keep you involved in all of our shenanigans. And uh, we look forward to coming to Calgary for the Capstone event, which has, is moving around this year and will be in Calgary in March. Uh, look forward to seeing you and your homestead there in the future. Thanks, Steve. That'll be excellent. And thank you for your leadership um, on CDSN, because I think all of the credit you can take is is because of excellent leadership. Oh, you're going to make me blush now. Good thing this is not being taped visually. Thanks again, and good luck with the rest of your semester, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Sounds good. Good afternoon and welcome everybody to the interview segment. My name is Professor Anessa Kimball. I'm full professor of political science at University Laval. I am also co-director of the CDSN themes on security, climate security, and NATO, and one of the co-hosts of Battle Rhythm. Today, I have with me an interview, a PhD student at University Laval, Gianmarco Fontana. And he is here to speak with us about basically uh, his trip so far in terms of ha doing graduate studies in Canada, being from Italy, and uh, a little bit about his research. So welcome. Thank you, Professor Kimball. Thank you, Battle Rhythm, for hosting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to be here, and I'm looking forward to hear from uh, your question and talk about my training and my research. As I mentioned before, you're a PhD student. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, where you did your studies before coming to University Laval? So I'm from Italy. I pursued my studies there, the bachelor degree and the master degree, both there but in different universities. So I had my bachelor degree in uh, political sciences and international relation in a small Southern university uh, called the University of Salento. Let's say there I built up my first academic ground. I was keen to, to do some research. I had my humanities studies. We can call it like that during my high school. So I was already prone to to engage with some with a university training so i had my my bachelor degree there where i had the opportunity of course to build my core knowledge about international relations and then i decided to move to turin for a specific reason let's call it non-academic training was really engaged with the politics especially local politics but during my bachelor degree, my interest for uh, international politics and, you know, like I finished my high school training and started university in 2012. And we know that in 2011, the world was shocked by some uh, critical movements all around the globe. So that was part of my interest in uh, pursuing also a master degree. And uh, I, I decided to move to Turin because of the master degree with with a specific focus on Middle Eastern politics. So I was quite, let's say, shocked by the events of 2011 of the Arab uprising. So I decided to, to move there 
and have my further training with this master that was actually not focused on international relations, but more on comparative politics of the area. So it was an area study master. There I developed a more, a deeper, very deeper uh, focus and knowledge about the Middle East. It was actually a comparative politics uh, master degree, so it was really focused on domestic politics of each country. So I ended my master and bachelor training with very core study about international relations and with a focus, a specific focus on Middle East and North Africa. And nowadays I'm trying to combine them, let's say. And so what made you consider studying in Canada for your PhD? Actually, there's a ve- this is a very, let's say, personal uh, story because during my master degree in Turin, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, Professor Francesco Cavatorta, who was visiting professor that year for just a semester. So it was really, <laughs> I had a lucky strike <laughs> to meet him there. So after my master degree, at first I tried to focus uh, on uh, European institution, but actually when I considered the fact that having a training in North America as a PhD student would have been real, let's say, hot point on my training. And also knowing that Professor Cavatorta was there as one of the best experts of the area of studies of Middle East and North Africa. I made contact with him again after the master degree. We never lost contact, actually. And I just asked him if, if my research, my topic would fit in the, at University Laval in the department. And he invited me to apply. And so here I am. And then... One of your first courses, you took that theory, that theories of international relations courses with me. And so that's how I ended up coercing you into an interview. And so what has been the most challenging aspect of the PhD program? This is a very, say, huge discussion not only about the PhD per se, but also about the differences between North American system and the European system. But I would say that the most challenging aspect of the PhD for me was to engage with monthly or periodic works at home, also individual works. I mean, it was really stimulating as a student because in Italy, in Europe, we are not used to do such type of activities during our courses. Yeah, that was the most challenging part because especially in Italy, we are, let's say, we are used to study a lot during the lectures and then have just a very huge final exam. So the approach is completely different from my from my training and get all the things together and organize the work, manage my time. I think it was one of the most challenging aspects. It's not only about how much things you have to study, but it's about managing the, the, the things you have to do. Basically. Yes, yeah. yes. Especially yeah. time management becomes extremely important when you're yeah. taking multiple courses that have you know very many things to do and then of course we're also trying to prepare you with professionalism and doing conferences and talks and so could you tell me a little bit about um your research what are you what is your research question and what is your dissertation about you already mentioned you're Uh, working with uh professor francesco cavatorta who's our specialist in the middle east so basically my dissertation can explain the one about my training i'm trying to have this dissertation which combines the two main fields of my training, 
So international relation and comparative politics. I'm trying to underline the international aspect of the resilience of authoritarian government in Middle East. That is, let's say, a new strand of research in this area because most of the studies are focused on a country-by-country -country approach or a comparative approach. As I told you about my master's degree, so the area studies are very focused on comparative approach, which consider the domestic vari variables to explain things, dynamics such as transition to democracy, not depending on their success or failure, but just looking at the process. And uh, so I'm trying to fit in also the international variable, considering that, uh, and for this, I'm trying to combine my two fields of uh, training, my training fields. And I will look at this type of phenomenon through a single case study which is very limiting, let's say, in terms of generalization. I could get the base to analyze the condition in which these type of processes occur. So I will look at the Syrian civil conflict that was a really off topic during the last 10 years. And I decided to focus on Syria because for my master's degree dissertation, I had thesis about domestic tools of resilience of the Syrian government in a comparative historical perspective. Now I'm focusing on the international dimension of the Syrian resilience. So I will look at which international condition helped the Syrian government to stay in power vis-a-vis, -vis, let's say, the civil war, the popular claim at the beginning, then the civil war. My hypothesis is that in this particular scenario, the influence of international actor, in this case, Russia and Iran, most than, than other, have played a crucial factor in explaining the survival of the Syrian regime. So I'm trying to put some international variable in order to consider this aspect of the transition failed or succeeded to democracy in the area, because the broader aim, let's say, it's not just to talk about the Syrian case, but to enlarge the perspective and uh, studies on the Middle East area, because the Middle Eastern area is always described as exceptional toward processes of democratization. But truth is that, especially during these years, in late 2000, 2020, I think it's quite reductive just to look at domestic variables and not considering the international one, considering that we live in a very in an ultra-globalized world nowadays. I will try to look at international variables to explain, to, to have a broader explanation of the influence of external sponsorship on a domestic context. And so you mentioned that this is a nice way to kind of bring together your trainings that have been in international relations and comparative yeah. politics. Yeah. And so would you, uh, I, this is not even on the list of questions, but now you've interested me. So based on the fact that you're thinking a lot about, you know, Russia and Iran, um, yeah. you know, what would you say to like a Canadian decision maker if you had to give them advice about Syria and about you know what to do it seems to be like you know a never-ending question so you know if yeah. you had if you had the ear of our you know the de decision maker of somebody in foreign policy global affairs so what would you 
What would you tell them? I would tell them maybe an approach. I mean, the situation is quite particular because Syria was really sponsored by actors such as Russia and Iran, which are, I mean, they are common only as not allied countries. So I know that there are some friction in intervening in such dynamics. Moreover, Syria has been battleground for 10 years, so it's really difficult to intervene and act there. Also because the government won the war and the Syrian government is not new to his positioning towards the USA, the Western countries, Europe and Canada as well. So I know it's a very challenging topic, but I think that there should be, I mean, a recognition of what happens, uh, of the fact that some non-allied international uh, sponsors uh, acted in that country, but now the country needs to be rebuilt. And it's a very hard topic because, I mean, the Syrian government has won the war, is still there, but who suffered? I know it's a bit cliche, but who suffered the most was the population. So it's not just about having direct relation with the Syrian government, depending on its alignment, but it's, I mean, the humanitarian crisis in Syria is one of the most shocking of the last 10 years, along with Yemen and maybe nowadays Ukraine and Afghanistan. So it's a very hard task for the international community also because as I was just saying, there are a lot of uh, problems all around the world. Ukraine is the most impellent, I think. But I mean, rebuilding Syria and helping the country, not only the institution, helping the country and the people would help the international community be more trustable in the eyes of Middle Eastern countries as well, because there are Every day, a lot of tension between uh, the Middle Eastern countries and Europe and United States. So I think Syria is just part of the, let's call it broader Middle East agenda for the Western country, especially. I know you've had the opportunity to work with one of our research centers here at University of Laval, the CIRAM, which is the Centre Inter... Interdisciplinaire de Recherche sur l'Afrique et le Moyen-Orient. Yes. And so can you tell us a little bit about what type of research projects you've worked on, the opportunities you've had? Basically, uh, with the CIRAM, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm involved as a young scholar and as a PhD student uh, since my my supervisory professor Cavatorto, who is also one of the directors of the CIRAM. I had the opportunity to focus on my research. So I'm at the end of my of the first year of my PhD training. So I'm not already that engaged in the research agenda of the CIRAM. But as soon as I finish my training period, let's say, I think that I would find in the CRAM a very good network to pursue my research about international politics in the Middle East and my research project about the Syrian uh, regime and the international sponsors. Uh, so basically, for now, with the CRAM, I had the opportunity to follow some uh, seminaries and conferences with authors which are uh, all experts of the Middle East and North Africa area. I followed the presentation of some book last week. I mean, there have been not a lot of opportunities right now, but I had this first year to get 
in contact with the researchers from the network mm -hmm. of CRAM. Mm -hmm. So the networking aspect has been more, let's say, impacting during the first year. On the other side, I have two supervisors actually for my training and dissertation. And my second supervisor is Professor Jonathan Paquen, and I'm also in the network, the RAS network which is a center on uh, international uh, strategy and security issues. I was brought in by Professor Jonathan Paquen, and there I had the opportunity to work for the network. Now I'm waiting some commentaries and reviews on a policy brief that I wrote along with uh, Professor Paquen about the U.S. withdrawal from the Afghanistan mission in 2021 and the impact of the withdrawal. I also wrote, and I'm waiting for some commentaries and reviews, a chapter I mean, by myself, but invited by Professor Paquen about the impact of the presence of the United Kingdom in the international coalition against Daesh. In this moment, I had more opportunity to work on actual production with RSA and to have a good network with both research centers. And so we've already talked about, you know, how you come from Italy. And of course, I was trained in the United States. And so one of the questions I like to ask students yep. is to talk a little bit about the differences between <laughs> what we call European style and North American yep. style style graduate studies. So the very first different thing that shocked me was the type of uh, production and engaging during the sessions. So there are no dead times, maybe. I mean, you are always engaged week by week or month by month. And I think this is pretty good, especially for PhD students, because it allows us to really use the tools we had during our trainings. It's good for writing, for comprehension, to learn how to be more clear to the public. I mean, there's a very different type of engaging from Italy. Moreover, the fact that there are no oral exam, <laughs> that's quite mm -hmm. strange for me as Italian student, but I really like it. I really like this North American way. The most important difference that I've noticed is that here in North America, you put really a lot of effort and attention on methodology. I mean, I had my five years of training in Italy. I was full of concept, full of theory, but I lack the tools to put it down in a clear way and to be clear to the public, to be clear to me, to understand which were the goal of my research, the goal of what I was going to explain, the goal of the dynamics, the processes that I was analyzing. I found the methodologies lectures really, really useful. I think I would say that even if reading were not so easy, <laughs> uh, I think that the methodology courses that I took here during my PhD, my first PhD training year were undoubtedly the, the most useful lectures I had in my, in my career. Of course, as somebody who's a big fan of methodology, I will definitely agree to that. And I know for students, yeah. those courses are sometimes some of the hardest and maybe most painful yeah. to follow when you're taking them. But I yeah. think that as you get distance from them, you start to appreciate them more and more. Because exactly. Exactly. You see how the same. The yeah, you need to tributes. elaborate what you read, what you learned. And I personally noticed that by the time everything became more clear in my mind and my written production has improved really a lot thanks to, to methodology courses. This is 
for sure, a part of the type of engaging during the session. This is the main difference between North America and European uh, university. And so what advice would you give first year graduate students, you know, looking to survive a PhD program in North America? What, what, what are some <laughs> of the things that you would say are the, you know, aside from get sleep now, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I would say to get ready for methodology courses, <laughs> lectures, of course. And to me, the first year of training here in North America was quite a cultural shock. But as I realized that it was just, let's say, it was just university as I did, I had all the training, all the tools I needed. I just needed to manage my free time and my working time. So learn how to manage your time because academia is a very engaging uh, field. So the risk of overloading or overthinking or burning out, it's really just behind the corner. So for me, the mental wellness, the approach to the work, to the life in general is one of the, the most important thing. I mean, if you're able to put down the things you have to do and leave out, chase away the anxiety, you will work great. So even if you have a cultural shock, as I had from Europe to North America, I managed it and then here I am. So that's the most important advice. Well, thank you very much for spending some time with me. It was wonderful to uh, chat with you again and learn about how your project is progressing. Thank you, Miss Kimball. And thanks to the friends of the Butter Reading Podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you.